0: Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email Art of Wargaming Podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're to the Art of War on the firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the EarVerm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today, we're going to continue moving right along with our study of the Napoleonic Maxims. But before we get into that, uh, perhaps you will recall that back in 2019, I began to promise the 12 Shots video, the video in which I was going to demonstrate two 12-shot forms, one of them by Sir Kyrian and the other by Warmaster Sumatai. And I promised it all throughout that winter, and the next year, and the next. And eventually I stopped promising it because I realized that I was delaying on it because of my own perfectionism. Some of you may understand what I'm talking about when I talk about sometimes a paralytic perfectionism. This is a video that's going to be going out and being seen by y'all or whoever happens to come by on YouTube. And yeah, that makes me overthink which is a bad thing for a commander to do. It's a good thing I'm a scholar and not like a proper general. And so I was sitting there and of course I delayed and delayed and delayed. And then we come up to the other weekend. If you'll recall, I mentioned that we were going on an invasion of Frostwall, which is a realm that is new and north of us here. And while I was there, I had a, a good friend, Red Crow, and he's, he's about my age, a little younger. And he was kind of hurting toward the end of the day he would busted up his his arm a little bit because he was throwing shots and he was doing it with a straight arm and they were coming in and getting jarred weird and uh you know i heard him talk about some of the same issues that i've had you know tendonitis in the in the wrist and elbow and so i told him i was like as we get older we really need to be more disciplined in the way that we throw our shots and in the um the way we practice our shots and so i started talking about the use of forms I asked him if he he did any forms and you know a lot of people within within Bellagarth or other organizations you'll have a lot of pell work you know where you where you get uh a, a, some sort of punching bag some sort of pell and you do different combos on it you do different strikes and this is very important too don't get me wrong i'm not saying discontinue doing pell work but Doing forms can be extremely useful because doing something in that slow and methodical way can train your body how to do it in a quicker way. And so when we're training using the forms and, you know, for this particular uh, issue, making sure that we maintain our L's in some way, always have the elbow bent at least a little bit, because the second that we overextend it, uh, that's, that's when you put yourself into hurt territory, even for younger guys, even, even for you younger kids, you know, gals and gals and and non-genders and, and everybody who, who come in, all of us need to pay attention to our, to our joints, to our ligaments, to our tendons. So, um, I showed him the 12 shots and as I'm going through it, you know, he's, he's sitting there and He's kind of doing it with me and he said, you know, there's no way I'm going to remember this. Do you mind if I, if I take a video of this, this was really going to help me and some of the folks around here, I'm sure. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I did the 12 shots on the video and we got done. He thanked me. And as I was walking away, I realized that he had helped me complete the task that I have been promising for the last four years. So I asked him to send it to me and he did. And it's not perfect. You know, there's there's noise in the background. I'm not dressed in my absolute fanciest garb, but it's there, and it is absolutely sufficient. So if you have been waiting patiently, very patiently, for that 12 Shots video, it is now on our YouTube channel. That's right. You suddenly have a reason to visit our YouTube channel, and I'm going to be putting up the the episodes on there too, eventually. The the episodes that we have here on, on the Spotify. I know a lot of people listen to podcasts on YouTube as well, so I'm going to be popping those up there. I, really, I just need to get the the first episode done. That's what's delaying me on that one, because that's going to be really easy. Take the audio that I would normally have on Spotify, put it on YouTube with a thumbnail, boom, bada-bing, you got an episode on there. It's great. But the only data that we do not have is for that first episode. We cannot uh, there's no way to recover that particular, that particular audio. And so I need to go back and re-record that episode, which I've been meaning to do anyways. Um, cause you'll notice that it's the only one that had the explicit rating because we, we had a whoopsie in the background and, uh, yeah, it is what it is, but I've been meaning to go back and, and kind of redo that anyways. So, uh, you'll look for that, look for a video on, uh, that, and if you've got friends who are wanting to listen, but, you know, they just don't listen to podcasts on, on any sort of audio site, but they do stuff on YouTube, uh, let them know. Let them know that uh, it's not going to be too terribly long, and of course I say that four years later. <laughs> oh, Lord. Anyways, um, yeah, I think that's all I have for, for our little intro here, so let's now step into the world of Napoleon and his ideas and max. We left off last time talking about the different qualities that you want to see in the various levels and positions of command. And we continue with that same idea as Napoleon refines many of the traits that he thinks are necessary for the various positions and ranks within a military structure. So let's jump right back in with number 79. The first principle of a general-in-chief is to calculate what he must do to see if he has all the means to surmount the obstacles with which the enemy can oppose him and when he has made his decision to do everything to overcome them you know we talked about this a little last time where there is no other person that has the same breadth of knowledge or view that the general does he doesn't have the same access to the information or to the training to which they were kind of elevated to this position and so you know kind of this there's something we always talk about but this maxim raises an interesting idea one that i don't think we've we touched on too terribly much because we talk all the time about our actions what we're going to do in a given situation and not necessarily about the reality of what we are looking at the the obstacles that are being placed in front of us like he says because the first principle right is to calculate how to win to look at the situation with that certain kudel and say okay this is how i need to apply these tactics these ideas and from what we learned last time these these searching not inventive but searching ideas the principles that we know and understand to work is there anything here that we can apply okay We've got a couple of things from maybe Caesar, maybe, uh, you know, Rommel or whatever that we're looking at the situation and we're saying, we can apply these. Now, do we have the ability to do that? If we're looking at our opponent's ability to defend, if we're looking at our opponent's uh, experience and normal tactics that they usually use, you know, some, some things that work in some situations don't work in others. Some things that work against certain opponents don't work against others. You know, if you have a high flanking tactic, and it works really well against stationary armies, but the second you start to deal with another army that uses high flanking tactics, and maybe if they're better than you, well, then suddenly we need to make sure that we look at what our opponent can throw at us differently. Are they going to be throwing up a sturdy defense? Are they going to have good counter attackers? Do they have a numeric or a technological advantage? Do we have the means to surmount these obstacles that the enemy can oppose us with? You know, we look at our plan and we say, what can go wrong? In what places could, could our opponent throw a wrench into this plan? At what points do we need to really understand and really be able to depend on the exploitation of perceived weaknesses? in our opponent's wall, so to speak. And so we're looking at all of this, not just what we can do, what would be the wisest course of action, but can we actually accomplish it with what we have on hand, with what our opponent is able to oppose us with. Can this action be done? And if not, we need to find a new action. You know, again, I can find a perfect action that Marlborough did during his campaigns on the continent. But if it doesn't, if I don't have the same number of men or the same proportion of arms, or if my opponent isn't similarly equipped to the opponent in his campaigns, well, they don't really apply then, do they? We can want it to be something like that, but very rarely do you actually have a Thermopylae situation. You you can many times see a bottleneck situation, but not many forces have the discipline that the Spartan and Greek forces did when defending that particular pass. You know, if, if the Persians had been able to amount or amount a, a different sort of attack than what they were accustomed to doing against other forces, then that thing, that it may have ended quicker as well. And that was part of the hubris on the part of the Persian commander who looked at the small force occupying and said, okay, I don't need to necessarily dedicate my genius for war on this. Let's just use the same tactics that we over always have. It'll be fine. It lost a lot of men to that particular thought and, and probably enough men to have lost him the rest of the campaign, but not that particular battle. So again, we're not just looking at what we should do at the best prosecution of what we do, but also can we do it? Can we back it up? And once we know that we can, once we have a, a plan and potential, we've got, okay, we, we know what we should be doing in the situation. We know that we can, we have the material to do it and to overcome well, at that point, we have to do everything we can to stick to that overall plan. We have to dedicate everything that we can to making sure that that works. Tentative steps forward, not necessary or or safe to be done in this particular case. There's a time and a place for caution. There's a time and a place for taking our time. But once we've established this is what needs to happen to win, everything we do needs to be aimed right at that, not rashly not rashly we're not trying to go completely out there we're not trying to go to the other side of the spectrum and instead of being too cautious we are entirely too you know bold about what we're doing in a bad way so instead we need to approach it with the cool calm collected focus of a laser you know still still powerful but focused where it's supposed to be all right next one 80 The art of a general, of the advanced guard, or of the rear guard, is, without compromising himself, to contain the enemy, to delay him, and to force him to take three or four hours to advance a mile. Tactics supply the only means to attain such great results. It is more necessary for the cavalry than for the infantry, for an advanced guard or a rear guard, than for any other position. The points... Of these, of these particular parts of the army are not overwhelming victory. You're dealing with forces that are not the main bulk of infantry. We're not dealing with the main bulk of artillery. We're dealing with smaller forces, self-contained forces that have very specific roles within the military apparatus. And a lot of that has to do with simply delaying the enemy or positioning the enemy in such a way that the rest of the body can come up and hit them in a point of weakness the division system which napoleon used is famous for this you know you have one division that comes up and hits an enemy and is distracting it as another division is coming over and hits them from the side from an oblique or from a from a wider flanking position and so this is something that can only be done when you have these these cooperative but distant and desperate um desperate forces within our army now why is it more important you know if we're talking about uh containing this enemy and delaying and forcing them to take a while to move you know this is important because again it fixes that enemy where we want for the for the rest of the force to be able to come up and it is important for cav as well because again we if we remember cav is not going to be our main victors you know there there are some forces throughout history that break these models, break these methods. the The horse armies of the steppes people, the Mongols and the Huns, they're famous for it. But in the majority of situations, what we're dealing when when we're dealing with the cav, right, is re- reconnaissance, and also harrying the enemy's lines, and then the pursuit. Those are the big things that the cav. Is used for, and then of course, if you've got a broken line that needs to be hit even harder, that's where the calf comes in. But the calf is not in of itself the knockout punch; it's the follow-up punch, or the the feint from side to side. And so, any of these positions, the rear guard, the rear guard especially, if we're talking about delaying action, if you have got an army coming up from behind, we well, definitely want as much time as possible to, you know, kind of maneuver the main body to to a defensive position. And so each of these serves their purpose as either a defense bubble. In the case of the rear guard, it's a matter of being like, okay, I want to keep you here so that you don't come up and attack the rear of the main army, right? That's the whole point of, of having that uh, rear guard and the advance guard again is going up and you'll know, think about it. Let's take this biology wise down to the, the micro level. Think about it like your immune system. You've got your T-cells that go out and they find the virus or the bacteria and they latch onto it. Now, they themselves are not going to be what defeats that virus or bacteria, or virus or bacteria. but what they do is direct in the white blood cell that will take out that virus or bacteria. And so the, the advance guard itself is not the one that is going to be delivering the blow unless they come across an enemy that is completely disorganized and available to be just destroyed in that particular moment, the advance guard's job is to, like the T cell, latch onto the enemy, delay them from moving in any direction so that when the white blood cell does arrive, it can just wipe out that force. It can just come at it with everything it has and have it be exactly where it's supposed to be when it wants to. So these delaying tactics and these abilities to faint and make your enemy think that they are, that you are where you're not, And make them not know where you actually are this is also done through the advance guard and through the cavalry You you can do these these false parades or these false movements of of troops that disguise that screen the actual army that's behind it or maneuvering to the side of it in any particular case so like i said for for these groups understanding their role. And I, I do this role sometimes when I'm when I'm fighting as well. When I'm out there on the field, a lot of times I will play the role of the advance guard. I will go out in front of the rest of the, the whole of the army, boldly striding. And I will get within, just outside of striking distance of my enemy. Now, sometimes that's further away if they have a bunch of pole arms, but just outside of striking distance and delay them. You know, stand there, stare people in the eyes, plant my feet on occasion, make to, to hit. You know, you sit, sit there and bring my weapon up and so people tense and they, you will know, get defensive about it. But what this does is it fixes the people who are directly in front of me so that when my when my troops, when my side actually comes up and is with me, I know exactly where they are and they know exactly where they are. They've been able to look on their approach and say, okay, well, these guys are now arrayed in this way. They're in a fixed position, if temporarily. And, you know, this is kind of the plan of attack that we can do on this, this force with what's been made available. And so, again, my point in striding out in front of the army, I'm not thinking that I'm going to solo the opponent opposing team. Nine times, uh, 95 times out of 100, uh, that's just not going to happen. I do, you know, nobody has the necessary skill level to, you know, do something quite like that in a lot, in most cases, I'm sure that there's somebody with the skill level out there. I am not that guy. But the point of my action is again, going up, harassing my opponent's motion and kind of keeping them from, from moving on the main body. I do the same thing when I flank too. If I've got, you know, folks who are coming around and I'm, and I'm seeing flankers come on my team, I'll go over and try to do a delaying action. I'm the rear guard in this particular analogy. And I'll holler, you know, I'm hollering the whole time. Hey, these guys are coming up behind us. Hey, we need to pay attention on this particular side. But my whole, my real job there is to delay them as much as I can, hoping that my, the main force, making hoping that my, the rest of my team is making short work of the rest of their team and can come and help me at some point. Because I know if I'm defending against like three flankers or a, or, a, or a just a you know, like a five person flank coming at me, Again, I'm not going to be necessarily the guy that kills them all, but in delaying them, I can lead my team to victory still. So that's a long way of saying that when we're operating extraneous from the main body, our rules, our goals are somewhat different than they would be if we're a part of the main body. Because if we're a part of the main body, body it's, you know, crunk smash. It's a matter of, you know, that that is when the de- decisive blow is trying to be brought is by that main body converging on what the other ones have set up so if you're a part of the advanced guard in any way if you're rear guard if you're walking out in the front boldly and kind of stupidly like i do sometimes or if you're one of the cavalry uh, folks if you're one of the very mobile folks that's kind of serving in a cav position you know that's where the tactics really come in where the timing needs to be perfect and where the understanding of one's position and purpose needs to be firmly in place as well number 81 it is exceptional and difficult to find all the qualities of a great general combined in one man what is most desirable and distinguishes the exceptional man is the balance of intelligence and ability with character or courage if courage is predominant the general will hazard far beyond his conceptions and, on the contrary, he will not dare to accomplish his conceptions if his character or his courage are below his intelligence. We have to be evenly matched, is what he's saying. It's, it's easy for a person to sit in a chair, staring at, uh, at the walls of his office, and, and kind of understand these things in abstract. And to understand them within like a historical context, it's, far, it's something far different to be in the actual general's chair to be in a position where it's like okay what i do matters you know if i'm standing over my board and i'm and i'm playing my my tournament game you know what i do matters every model that i lose off of that board is a model that i don't have to work with anymore and so i'm responsible for how that all kind of goes down and so my courage needs to match my intelligence, what I'm looking, what I'm thinking about, I have to be able to do that on the board, acknowledging that I will take losses. You know, we need to do the same thing when we're, when we're actually fighting as well. We need to make sure that we understand intellectually what we're doing and then have the courage to do it. Because on one side, like he says, if we have the intelligence, but not the courage, you know, the best best plan is going to go awry because the follow-through isn't going to be there. Because the energy that is needed to accomplish it is not going to be there because we're lacking in courage. Where, you know, on the other side, if somebody is not lacking in courage, but certainly uh, has more of it than intelligence, then you're looking at somebody who is going to be throwing away lives needlessly. And so both of these extremes are not good. you, You don't want somebody who is imbalanced on either of these topics. We're looking for somebody who can combine these ideas into one cohesive whole. A person who is intelligent and learned and experienced in their approach to the art of war, but also a person who is willing to take that knowledge, willing to take that experience and do something with it and bear the consequences of those actions. You see it a lot throughout history in real warfare generals who are afraid to lose troops. It's one of the great uh, critiques of a couple of the, uh, of McClellan and Meade was that they were trying to keep their armies too much intact. that They were afraid of fighting Robert E. Lee because they thought that the loss would stain their reputation or because they hadn't quite caught up to the way that the tactics were working in that particular war. And so they become defensive and defensive in, in not the right way, defensive in the, oh gosh, we shouldn't even fight really at all sort of way. So the courage was lacking. McClellan was smart. I mean, he did well in, in, at West Point. He uh, obviously did well enough to earn his position as you know, uh, General-in-Chief of the Union Forces, or at least of the, the Army of the Potomac. But he lacked the courage. He lacked the conviction to really follow through on that. And we need to not find ourselves in the same position. Our intelligence must match our courage, but... Our courage has to match our intelligence as well, because, you know, in the same era, the same war, we see Pickett. And Pickett, whose boldness, who said, I can march across this field and with sheer determination, with sheer force, I can walk into the opponent's lines and do just fine. And his boldness almost paid off. It was a heck of a hit. It was a decent battle, but the majority of his strength was bled for his boldness and lack of actual foresight in, in, in saying, you know what, there's a bunch of open ground between me and this other side. Maybe this isn't the way to go in. Maybe this isn't the way to waste lives trying to accomplish the impossible. And so in that case, you definitely had a an instance of bravery over intelligence. So balance them we have to balance them and uh, another quick aside on that same topic we've learned through our most recent authors that bravery is not an innate ability like some people are some people just have courage they have bravery from day one but that is also a trait that can be taught it is something that we can learn through discipline through practice this idea of courage or bravery and intelligence we don't necessarily have to be a complete genius to dedicate ourselves to study I mean, I, I've been a very rather slow learner throughout the course of my life. It took me forever to learn how to learn to you know play the musical instruments that I did. It took me forever how to learn how to fight. You know, I I had to kind of scrap with reality for each of these things. Well, I wouldn't even consider myself the most intelligent person in the world. I just have tried very, very hard to understand. I've tried very, very hard to accomplish. And so both of these things, intelligence and bravery, if we find ourselves lacking in one or the other, we don't have to despair. We just have to be honest with ourselves. We have to say, this is where I am flawed. This is where I am lacking. And then work to correct it. You know, work at improving our bravery. Work at improving, in, in this particular case, our education, perhaps, on the on the subject of the art of war. And then at that point, we can cultivate this, this these exceptional qualities in of ourselves. They don't have to be innate. It doesn't have to be something we were born with. We can work for it, and if we work hard, you know, there's a big chance that we can accomplish it. You know, that being said, not everybody's cut out to be a, a general in chief. That's why we're not all generals and chiefs, but we can still try to uh, uh, aspire to some of the same values and virtues. All right, eighty-two. With a great general, there is never a continuity of great actions which can be attributed to chance and good luck. They are always the result of calculation and genius. This is one of those moments where you can definitely hear Napoleon up his own butt. You know, he's, he's absolutely sitting there being like, everything about my victories was planned. Everything about my victories was something that I personally put in place. And many of them were. You know, he was a, he was a fantastic commander. He was he a good chief of staff. Who was able to you know disseminate those orders very quickly he put skilled commanders in the positions that they were necessary in and used his army to great effect there is no denying the military genius of napoleon however comma there is always an element of luck in any sort of war one of the things that we refer to um, you know, in belegarth of course we have a, a wide variety of skill levels You've got people like myself who've been doing it for 20 plus years. You've got folks who are starting to get their, you know, their feet truly underneath them. And you've got, you know, super new folks. And at every single one of these levels, there are things to learn. There are ways to advance. There are, um, you know, we never actually hit the ceiling. We can always keep improving ourselves. But no matter how long we've been in, for instance, I've been in for 20 years. And sometimes I'll find a new person who just schools me. And part of it is because they possess something called noob-foo, is what we call it. And this concept of noob-foo is that the person doesn't know what they're doing to the extent that they can surprise us. You know, we get accustomed. We get accustomed to shots being thrown in a certain way, with a certain speed, and a certain style. You know, because that's the meta that's what most people are doing. It's what we found works. And so it's something that we all keep doing. And in this way, you know, the whole overall community does become a little predictable because the overall tactics don't change. And of course, you know, some of this is just because a solid shop is a solid chop is a solid chop. The kidney drop is a classic because it works. Because it combines the economy of force with timing. And in its its particular placement, it's fantastic. The kidney drop, by the way, is one where you've got your your sword kind of up and you do like a diagonal shift down into the hip kidney area. And this is done after raising our opponent's weapon up, trying to get their weapon up either through um, a feint or through multiple strikes in a given area. And then it's dropped down into this particular chop. And... So there are many shots like that. The high cross. <laughs> if you're in Bellegarth and you've seen a part of any of the online culture, you will see people joking about the high cross all the time because it's a move that works. It's extremely popular in in the sport because it is something that's extremely effective. Not against a lefty like myself. I don't. I, I'm not well practiced at the high cross because most of the time lefties are confused going up against other lefties, and so we don't have the same patterns that I see in a lot of right-handed fighters. But all these things are to be expected. If you've been in long enough, you understand what works and you cleave to what works. A new person, perhaps, does not have that experience. They don't have that training. They don't know what limitations should be placed on given moves or given tactics. Perhaps they've come in from a different martial art than the ones that we study within our community, largely. You know, perhaps they come in with no real practice whatsoever, but have watched a lot of anime and have gotten their sword education from anime. Now, a lot of the stuff that they do will be nonsensical. A lot of the stuff that they do is easily defended against, but they will also pull out shots that one doesn't anticipate. And sometimes it's not even on purpose. They throw a shot at a particular angle because their wrist is too weak to do it any other way, but it ends up scooping up underneath the shield and striking you you're like wow your technique was terrible your force generation was terrible everything about that was terrible except for the fact that you won <laughs> that's that's the drawback and we have so we have to be careful of these things we have to understand uh, that that noob foo is absolutely a thing and, and it doesn't matter how good we are i've seen the best fighters i know die to noob foo or to something that they, they weren't necessarily taking and uh, taking seriously. And then on the opposite side of things, if we play Warhammer 40k or any other dice-based strategy game, of course, strategy matters. Of course, putting the right troops in the right places, with the right matchups and the right abilities, all of that stuff matters. But it still comes down to the dice. We can mitigate the best we can. We can give ourselves the best chances for victory. But sometimes the dice just aren't in our favor sometimes, uh, our bullets don't go where they need to go. Sometimes we miss when we should have hit. Sometimes we end up in a position that we don't, we can't be in because like I've, it's happened before, especially when i you know, am receiving something like, um, the gray knights, I play against them a lot. So I, I use them as an example, but a bunch of them teleport in around your lines, bunch of charges are declared. And the idea with this is that everybody makes it, of course that's the plan is it's kind of dependent on everybody making it but making a nine inch charge which is what it is right now in ninth edition to get in um that's well, hard on two dice it's actually two above with the with the averages so you're starting to get into not very common sort of numbers and so it is often the case that maybe one or two of those units make it through but not all of them now because of this that fight looks very different if it had gone through as planned if everybody had arrived, then usually that guarantees victory to the attacker because they've leveraged it in their mind. They're like, okay, this is the amount of force I need to overcome my opponent's force. But of course that comes down to dice rolls. So in particular, if we're playing a, a chance-based game like Warhammer 40k, then we are absolutely depending on luck as well as skill to get us through. Because again, it's not just skill or it's not just luck that gets people through. You know, we've got people who consistently win tournaments obviously there's something to be said for technique obviously there's something to be said for experience but it is still a dice game i've been in matchups that i felt like i was absolutely guaranteed to win just based on what i brought compared to what my opponent brought but after a series of misfortune a misfortunate or unfortunate excuse me dice rolls i find myself bereft of victory I stopped playing risk for that very same reason that I would build up this massive force and be, bring it bearing down upon one area that was maybe even sparsely defended and then roll after roll after roll, finding myself at the disadvantage. So even where on the field, this is also the case. Because and Not just because of noob foo, but because of all the other things that we've mentioned. And I always tell every fighter I go up against, even ones who are brand spanking new, I say every single fight is 50-50. Between a noob and a vet, between two vets, between two noobs, doesn't matter. Every single fight has one of two outcomes, victory or loss. And sometimes draw, if you both... Well, I guess if you both hit each other, I would call that both losing. Because in the real world, if we both strike one another with a sword, neither of us is walking away the victor of that particular engagement. You know, one person may be hit in a different way than the other, but we still got hit by a sword. And we're still bleeding. Which is not good. So it does come down to luck. And we do need to understand that, that sometimes the best laid plans, or the worst laid plans, you know, for instance, there was a lot of thing about the invasion of Normandy that should have gone wrong. There was a lot that DID go wrong, and yet it worked. Because there was a lot of luck involved on the, you know, disruption of the German side. Of course, there was the French resistance who were the complete wild cards, but also, you know, doing everything they could to disrupt German activity. But there was a lot at play. There was a lot at stake. And even within Napoleon's own time, you know, there was also luck involved. So we need to be the best prepared that we can be. We need to approach a situation with a sober mind and with all the preparation and skill that we can. However, we also need to account for randomness. We also need to account for the unexpected to happen and for luck to have some sort of of play there. Because to not do so leads inevitably to victory, and in Napoleon's case, to Elba. Number 83. A general-in-chief should never allow arrest either to the conquerors or... To the conquered fairly uh fairly straightforward the idea of the pursuit the idea of the um you know it doesn't matter the outcome of the battle we're still with it the the fight is still on we still are doing what we can to win and so resting taking ourselves out of the conflict that is the true defeat that is exactly when our opponent really wins but We should never allow ourselves to rest on our laurels or to stop our resistance to the enemy. Not until the conflict is is over in its entirety. Number 84. An irresolute general who acts without principles and without plan, even though he leads an army numerically superior to that of the enemy, almost always finds himself inferior to the latter on the field of battle. Fumblings in a mesotermine, which is the middle course, lose all in war. We have to follow through. We have to follow through with what we know, with what we understand, and as we had talked about previously, understand the capabilities of our army, understand the best way forward, and understand whether or not we can accomplish that with what we have on hand. And to understand these things, we have to understand the principles, all the stuff that we've been covering for the last, you know, 103 episodes, these foundations, these principles that are true in all aspects of war, in all aspects of military science. And without understanding those, without developing a plan that uses those as our principal foundation, (laughs) principles, see what I did there, then it doesn't really matter. If our opponent is, if they're the ones actually obeying these rules, the numbers do not actually matter you know i've absolutely seen good units who have good cohesion who have practiced well together who are well equipped well practiced well rested do well against uh, forces that are far numerically superior I, I you know i i don't mean to say that the triad are the absolute fight, best fighters in Belagarth. there are amazing fighters who are outside of the triad but a lot of what gives the triad even its bad name is that we pursue good fighters that we're looking for people who already have a high degree of skill on the field of battle. And so what is able to happen in that particular case is you have people who come together who already have that experience, who are now typecast as well, because each of the branches of the triad are looking for particular energy. They're looking for particular types of people that work within that that structure. And so there are principles in play. There is always a plan in play and so even if they're against a much even if we're against a much larger force usually that larger force is less organized or they have a greater um, disparity between skill levels with what's going on and different people coming from different regions who aren't used to practicing together aren't necessarily of the same mindset or personality type and that disorganization that is irresoluteness leads almost inevitably to vict- to, to defeat and so fumblings, like they say, not understanding exactly what we're doing and just screwing things up in the crucial part in this, in this middle course we've already prepared. We're now following through with that preparations. We're actually like moving towards the conflict. This is a crucial time, you know, a lot of games are won or lost in 40 K and in Bellagarth and the other things I've done with placement at the very beginning you know, putting people or units that are going to do the greatest good against our enemy. You know, it's all fine and dandy to like stack all our strong units against our opponent's weak side. But if our opponent does the same thing, then we enter into what is called the toilet bowl of death. And so trying to establish some sort of advantage on one flank or the other is smart, but not to such a point that it completely imbalances because I've, you know, I've seen it happen many times where you have the one really strong side and they push forward and they do fantastic but perhaps the enemy has spread themselves out a little bit differently had the skill level a little bit more spread and even though that one side may crumble because of the overwhelming force coming against it because of that skill level being spread out a lot of times that receiving force is going to preserve more because they're doing better in other places along the line and if they're able to follow through in those areas can come and strike that hard force and so there is of course power in combining everything together there is of course power in hitting one particular area with all of your strength but that leaves us weak everywhere else and even though if we're trying to be strong everywhere we're weak everywhere well if we're only strong in one place then we are also weak in in many other places so that overall dedication that is without a plan that isn't that isn't necessarily a plan. Hit them hard in one place isn't a plan. It isn't a, a, a based on principles. I mean, it is based on physics, mind you, but it's not based on these these fundamental principles that we're talking about. So, yeah, we have to know what we're doing, and we have to base what we're doing in the principles that we know lead toward victory. And I think that's where we're going to stop today. So um, we're going to continue next time with with a few more of these qualities that should be found in generals and then we're going to be moving on towards you know a little bit of a little bit of siege but not too terribly much and some analysis of the different branches so uh it's been wonderful talking with you all again and can't wait to do it again next time that's our show thank you so much for listening if you haven't had enough of the art of war gaming in your life you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark signing off.